The Beginning of the End, Chapter 3, Part 2. What came next was the proverbial nail in the coffin. One night, not too long before Valentine's Day, my spouse was in a particularly affectionate frame of mind. They were conducting themselves in an extremely cuddly and touchy-feely kind of way. They asked if I wanted to go watch TV in the bedroom. So we did. We shut down all the usual electronics and lights in the living room and blew out candles and whatever other routine going to bed activities were normal for that time of year. We ended up lying down to watch something and got a little cozy. I dozed off while being squeezed around the neck and shoulders, almost suffocatingly. In hindsight, it's almost as though they were holding on to me for dear life and maybe they were picking up on the undercurrent of quiet dissatisfaction that I harbored about everything between us in those moments. When I finally came to, they were on top of and inside of me. I tried to push them off, but the action fell flat. I don't know if you've ever had one of those dreams in which you're trying to hit someone or something, and the punch won't land with any real force or make any impact. It was just like that. It felt like I was fighting them off with noodle arms through an atmosphere that was made entirely out of jello. They seemed very vexed at the whole situation when they finished up. I was asked if everything was okay, or something to that effect. I emphasized the point that I was fucking asleep, just like that. The colorful verbiage wasn't left out of my response either. I was offered a cigarette and some water. I declined the cigarette as I had quit four to five months prior to this incident, and I couldn't tell you if I accepted or rejected the water. We stayed up late into the night and into the next morning, talking and crying and talking and crying. And one of the things that came up was my confusion about why this happened. I was told they didn't know I wasn't unconscious when all this took place. The thing that didn't and doesn't sit right with me is the response that I received. I still don't understand how they thought I was in a functionally conscious state and consenting in those moments. Wakeful people are engaging in some form of activities, even if they're not physical in nature, like blinking or browsing the internet on their phones. There are context clues that indicate their state even if there's no dialogue or physical interaction taking place. One of my consistent inactive behaviors at the time was using my vape pen. Such as open eyes, again, these are context clues. I'm not a sleepwalker or a sleep talker. I was still, for the most part, a relatively deep sleeper when all this took place. And I asked how they thought I was okay with this, and I was told that they thought I was trying to pull them in towards me. And I can only assume this is in reference to when I tried to push them off. There's an underlying message to all this that confirms perceptions I had in the years leading up to this. I would casually describe myself as a secretary hooker mother maid if I had to use an adjective on how I felt my spouse perceived me during the duration of our relationship. Instead of feeling treated like I was a partner, 
I felt as though my value was held in the tasks that I performed, and the gist of that is summed up in my previous marital self-assessment. There's one takeaway about sexual consent as a concept I think the world at large needs to embrace, myself included. Just because there's no roughing up or physical violence doesn't mean it isn't rape. I did not understand this concept when this happened to me, and when this took place, I was not in the frame of mind to consent and be okay with what occurred, for multiple reasons. First, I wasn't conscious, and second, our relationship was not in a place in which this type of thing would have been acceptable. This goes back to context clues, being able to read the room and know your audience. If we were still getting along and we had a more open and sexually expressive relationship at the time this took place, I may have a different perception of the situation. I could say the same if we were engaging in more consistent sexual activities when this went down, but we weren't. At the same time, I carried a very heavy sense of shame in regards to calling it what it was. For a long time, I've referred to this as a sexual assault or an assault on the account of my former spouse, but in all reality, this was rape, period. It took me a very long time to be able to accept it for what it was. I would be lying if I said I wasn't physically turned off by the changes in my spouse that took place. At no point did I hide my feelings from them. I was very clear in how the changes impacted my feelings towards them in terms of a sexual nature. It was conveyed that this outward expression was a turnoff to me physically, but in the same dialogue I expressed that my view on that caliber of influence to some degree or another stems largely outside of one's control, not dissimilar to certain things that drive individual identity. I elaborated that I don't have to like something or agree with it to understand it, and again, this turned into one more thing. In the end, another message that was received from all of this is that it was acceptable for them to pursue the identity they were seeking, but it wasn't allowed to impact me in any negative capacity, or that I was allowed to have feelings about the whole thing. But in the end, how I felt about this, or anything else contained within the parameters of this relationship, was viewed as invalid or negative. An additional unpleasant side effect of this has played out on repeat in all the assorted situationships that followed. I've allowed myself to be viewed and used as a vessel by four different men since all this went down, and now I'm in the process of creating distance from both the people and the behaviors. And there's something very disheartening about feeling like the truth behind the lifetime commitment I made was exposed because the person I chose made a decision, conscious or otherwise, to value me for nothing more than the service my body provided to them over the years. There were many other facets to this statement aside from the sexual nature attached to what happened that night. They used me to play dress up and attempt to live vicariously through me while also putting me down in the process, making commentary about how and when I chose to wear makeup or not, outfits I put together that they insulted. Some of these turned out to be rooted in jealousy, 
when they were envious of fashion choices that I made that they felt they couldn't get away with without being unmasked, the item or items in question would be aggressively put down. It didn't matter if it was something I loved or how I felt about myself in the circumstances. The standard response was along the lines of, I hate it, that's horrifying, I want to take it out back and burn it, or you should throw that in the trash. If a side-by-side -side comparison were made of things I was put down for and my ex's current fashion choices, the parallels would be astounding. This is yet another layer of this shit sandwich that I'm dissecting. At some point, when they stepped out of our room during the conversation that night, I managed to confiscate the skis from the gun cabinet. I maintained possession of them for over a year after all of this went down. It took a long time for my sleep quality and quantity to recover from this whole incident, and I'm still working on my ability to build and maintain relationships and forgiving myself for any and all decisions I made prior to this that may have led to all of this taking place. Before this went down, I had been a relatively deep sleeper, although I hadn't been getting the same standard of rest since the whole situation at work. After all this took place, I was lucky if I got four hours a night, and usually this was the help of some melatonin or other sleep-inducing substances. I tried waiting for them to get home from work and go to bed under a guise of normalcy, but I couldn't wind down enough to do anything but lay there, and I didn't want to do that. I tried to change things up and go to bed a few hours before they arrived home from work each night, and it helped, but minimally. The tension in the house was only building at this point, and I could see the evidence of their restlessness when we did cross paths. On a few occasions, I was asked to join them on going for a drive to clear their head. I went one time, and every time after that, it seemed the nervousness around the request was increasing. Their erratic energy was only multiplying, and my fear was that if I went, maybe they'd drive us off over an embankment or off of a bridge. And I'm not saying this was a conscious thought, but in certain mental states, people are more susceptible to random impulses. And in a heightened emotional situation, these impulses are more difficult to keep contained. Sometimes I would imagine being left for dead in a cornfield or some other category of murder-suicide taking place if I were to join them. I really don't have adequate words to convey the overwhelming anxiousness they were emitting, and this kept me tethered to the house whenever I wasn't at work. There were days I would beat myself up internally for not seeing the signs of what happened, and I say that because my husband developed a consistent pattern over the years. They weren't really into being any kind of physically affectionate unless they wanted something from me, and I'm assuming you can guess what that was. Somewhere deep down, I thought I should have connected those dots, and I felt completely oblivious for not expecting it. There was also an overwhelming sense of shame attached to allowing this whole situation to have to, to, have to get to this point for me to finally decide I had to let go, get out, and move on. I was scheduled to work the day after the original incident had taken place, and I took respite in conversation of the holidays with family and television show recommendations with the male employee I had previously mentioned. Unbeknownst to him, his suggestions provided a much-needed distraction from my current circumstances when I wasn't on the job. I spent my spare time I had either scouring the internet for rentals or binge-watching the comedies he had suggested I look into. It took a long time to find someone 
I felt I could talk to about everything that was happening in my life at the time. In the family, I unloaded to my oldest brother first. My sister and I weren't close enough to have that kind of dialogue when this took place, and my other brother was coming out of his own relationship struggles, so I didn't want to add more weight to his growing burdens. And when I got it all off my chest, he told me it sounded like a lot of extremely high-stress situations to be contending with in such a short duration of time. The weight of his words in those moments didn't really hit me until much later, and this was around the same time that the enormity of everything started to show noticeable outwardly expressed symptoms. These signs didn't fully develop until about six months after the fact. Again, I put all the stressors in Pandora's box, and if I really tried to handle all these things as they happened, I'm not sure what the outcome would have been. As soon as I got my wits about me, I started diverting money into a savings account that was completely separate from my established checking. After I accumulated a considerable amount in savings, I started scouring the internet for rentals I thought I could afford on my salary. I scheduled tours to view two of the ones I came across, and I'd even talked with my person about maybe getting a place together halfway between our locations at the time. After touring the one with the higher price tag, I deliberated on whether or not it was worth an additional 200 a month, and after seeing the second cheaper place, the answer was a clear and resounding yes. I managed to ask both of my parents for financial aid to help me in the process. My dad helped with purchasing furniture, and my mom helped with funding toward the down payment and first month's rent. Thankfully, I was selected for the nicer of the two places that I applied for, so I started to pack up the pieces of my life that I actually wanted to take with me. Things eventually calmed down to a lesser degree of intensity around the house, too. Around that time, we took the day trip that I mentioned earlier, and it was to some tourist destination with a circus sideshow kind of vibe. I would really like to go back under different circumstances. There's something unsettling about maintaining a guise of calm normalcy in that setting. Those who have experienced the end of a long-term commitment might know what I'm talking about, at least if it was an amicable split. Those moments are both surreal and bittersweet. It's almost like, to some extent, when there's an air of acceptance, the whole relationship can divert back to what it was or what it seemed to be in the beginning stages of its growth. When there's nothing left to lose, the weight of everything is lifted, and in those moments, when you can peacefully be together while you know it's over, you can also see glimpses of the things that drew you together in the first place. I don't know very many people that have had any kind of peaceful ending to a marriage. Having gone through it twice, I think the moments I'm talking about can also turn into the moments where you question the decision to end everything because what you're seeing is the magic that's been long since hidden behind whatever happened over the months or years. At some point in this whole process, I had the conversation letting them know exactly what was taking place. I can't put my finger on it, but I don't think they really believed in the words I was saying until it was actually happening and saw the steps taking place with their own eyes. By happening, I mean getting the keys and ordering my new furniture for my new life, although I had maintained an open dialogue from start to finish regardless. Many attempts were made in the days and weeks leading up to the move to dissuade me from actually leaving. They initially would attempt some form of guilt pertaining to leaving our pets behind, 
I was asked to wait a few more months because an offer was made to pay exorbitant fees in order to help me secure an affordable location where I could take them with me. They claimed to want the additional time to be able to save up funds for that along with any other financial concerns about their future. Then they threw out concerns about being able to afford the care of those animals on only one salary. Eventually, there was a change in control tactics. Then they attempted to steer the direction of the move in terms of the physical location I went to and what that distance was from the home we built together. The desire appeared to be keeping me closer to the house, and I don't know if the goal was to be closer to them or closer to the household pets that they didn't want to be responsible for. They finally admitted defeat when I got the keys to my new place, and I'm still not entirely sure how much of that stemmed from a need to control the situation in any way possible out of fear in regard to taking on any and all of the household responsibilities that had previously been handled by me or out of blatant refusal to accept what was taking place and let go of the sinking ship that was once a marriage. The fucked up part is that I can't help but find funny is one of the reasons I chose to stick around the first time I thought about making my exit was my concern about the welfare of his cat. I pretty much took over the functions of his care almost immediately. I fell in love. As fucked up as this might sound, I don't think I would have made the decision to leave yet if my stepcat were still alive. Of all the pets we had come and go over the years, he was, and probably will always be, my favorite. That's not to say I don't love the others, but we didn't get the same time to establish that type of bond. When we were first introduced, he was still seemingly young and playful, and I watched him take on the role of mother with any new kittens that were brought into the household. He also took on the house brother role with all of the adult cats that came and went. What amazed me was how perceptive he was in terms of dealing with a variety of personality types that came and went. It's like he had a gift for knowing what was needed to maintain a primarily peaceful environment while simultaneously ensuring that his role as the oldest or the alpha was established. We experienced a few scares in regards to his health over the years. He had urinary tract issues, which it turns out is more common with ginger boys. Something about the male's anatomy having a narrow urethra coupled with unidentified gene markers in the orange variant of their X chromosomal expression. This came up twice, relatively early on. He had to be hospitalized overnight both times. We used the money we received as wedding gifts towards his care the first time, and after the second time, he was put on a prescription diet and he did very well with that for a long time. Then I watched his health deteriorate, and in the end, I would take him outside for long afternoons hanging out in the grass on our front lawn. I would watch videos on my phone, lay in the grass with him, and sing songs to him. I tried to provide comfort in those final days and weeks by cajoling him to eat and drink and by being present. It was not dissimilar to what we experienced earlier with his urinary health scares. And then one Saturday in the middle of September, I knew I had to let him go. We took him to the vet and put him down, but in the end, I refused to be manipulated for the same reason that I decided to stay all those years prior. By June, I was living out on my own for the first time in about 17 years, give or take. Unfortunately, I had to get on blood pressure medications due to my stress levels about a month or so beforehand. I had experienced some really weird physical symptoms that I never had before consistent, almost constant headaches, 
and these were coupled with immense pressure in my eyes. I initially thought the allergy pills I was taking were the root cause of my eye pressure, but it remained long after I stopped taking them, and occasionally I got this peculiar, almost floaty, foggy feeling, and that last part was really hard to describe. It was such a foreign feeling to me. When I finally went to see the doctor about it, they told me that the standard protocol was to recommend lifestyle changes prior to writing a prescription. Then I told them that I had quit smoking nine months prior to this appointment and had adopted a caffeine-free lifestyle in the three weeks that had led up to this unexpected necessity. I have since had that medication switched to something more potent, and I've also stopped taking them on an as-needed basis or in a reactive capacity and started taking them consistently as prescribed on the label to be more proactive instead. Prior to all of these wild life events, I always had amazing blood pressure results. Occasionally, it even bordered on being too low, and when that happened, I had a tendency to suddenly lose consciousness. Typically, it was preceded by a minor tell, which I took as an indicator to sit or lie down depending on my current position when it had occurred. And here's a random fun fact about that. Uncontrolled high blood pressure can lead to kidney failure, and kidney failure can also lead to uncontrolled high blood pressure. Talk about a catch-22.